0: So let me read for us now Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Thanks, Mike. Well, good evening, guys. Good to be with you tonight. Um, I did have to rehearse that many times. I've told a few of you good morning already. I apologize for confusing you on the time of day that it is. Um, but good evening. It's good to be with you. And if you haven't yet, if you could flip open a Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. That's where we are tonight. Uh, it's, it's really great that we can be in this place as we're beginning a new season as a church uh, here at Mountain View um, but as we're in, uh, beginning this new season here at Mountain View, we're also ending uh, an incredible journey that we've been on since the beginning of January uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we've been on this search, haven't we? Uh, since the beginning of the year, asking the question, how can we live a meaningful life? Right? A life that matters, a life that lasts, a life that the preacher in Ecclesiastes calls Gain calls it gain. If you look back, even flip back to chapter one, verse three, you saw his big question that spilled out into the whole rest of the book. Like he, he, he didn't bury the lead on what this whole book was about. He said, what does man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so we've seen the preacher on this sort of quest to figure out what can be gained in this world. Where's meaning found? And he talked about just sort of these endless cycles that we go through, how you wake up in the mornings, and you eat, and then you make your to-do lists, and then you head off to work, right? You meet with people, you do counseling, you make spreadsheets, you fix things, you maybe invest people's money right? You protect people. You go to meetings, right? You run errands. Or maybe you stay home and you you work on Zoom now and you love that for some reason. I don't understand you, but many of you love working from home now. Or maybe you you need to work from home, right? You take care of the kids, right? You work as a full-time mother or parent even, right? And so you're just Hoping to keep your kids alive every day. You're, you're making meals. You're cleaning, right? You're, you're fixing things around the house. You're doing distance learning school. You do all this, and then you come home, right? You eat. You decompress. You watch something, read something, play something. You go to sleep, and you wake up, and you do it all over again, right? And then you get to this moment in your life, and you go, what was this, what's this all about? What am I actually gaining, right? This has been the whole thing, right? We acquire these things in life that we have, and then we get to the end of our life, we're like, well, why did we acquire those things? We feel out of control about the future. We feel frustrated about our lives, and we experience this, the clock ticking, and we get to the end of our lives, and the clock makes its final tick, and we meet our grave, and then we go, where is the meaning? All right, this has been the whole book. And it's almost like we've been sitting on the front porch in two really comfortable rocking chairs with this preacher wise old solomon right we've we've thought him to be and we're looking out over this vast valley at all the scenery and he's just sharing with us all this wisdom right that we know is inspired by god we're having a good cup of coffee and we're getting to the end here with our time with him on that porch and he wants to summarize for us what is this meaning that we've been searching for where is it found and he says Basically to you, he goes, well, I want to know, have you ever done something like lose your keys, maybe a pen, maybe you've lost your glasses, and you've gone on this search looking for your keys this entire time? You're looking beneath the cushions, you're looking in between the cushions, you have other people in your home helping you look for the keys, you've done this for maybe an hour, and finally someone goes, have you checked your pockets, right? And then you feel in your pocket. And you go, man, right? Have you ever felt really stupid and done that? Maybe it's just me somehow. This feels like a weekly occurrence in my life, right? Have you checked your pockets and you realize the keys have been with you this entire time? As we get to the end of this book and we're on this front porch with the preacher, he basically says to you, have you checked your pocket, right? It's been with you this whole time, right? It's been with you this whole time. That's what we're finding here at the end that what we've been searching for, we've actually had all along. Right? He looks at us and he says, you want to find gain in this world, you want to live a truly meaningful life, will you live with the end in mind? And so he asks us a few things. These, these last few six verses here I think are meant to really raise two questions for you. These questions should be on the screen. Verses 9 through 12, uh, he's basically raising this question for you who is your shepherd? And if you want to know who your shepherd is, if that sounds like a weird question for you, if, you're, if you haven't been a Christian for very long, that might sound like a weird question, I grant you that, right? Um, but a valuative question would be, look for who you're listening to. Look for who you're listening to. That's who's shepherding you. And secondly, he wants to raise this issue of who am I fearing? Who do I fear? And, and if I don't know the answer to that, I just look for who I'm obeying, right? These things go hand in hand. And the answer to these questions is going to help us understand how we can spend our lives meaningfully in the here and now, no matter our circumstances in this world. So let's look at this first one, who is my shepherd, in verses 9 through 12, right? Read with me in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and a brightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Every student said, amen, right? It totally is. These verses are basically a mini-commentary on the book, right? They explain how and why the preacher did what he did with these words, and they're explaining what the in- intended effect was to be on your life. And so uh, this should be on the screen for you, but basically he talks about how some of these words were meant to be delightful words, some of these words are meant to be painful words, and these words are, are to be sufficient words, right, so let's just work through the words that he's used in the collection of this book. In verse 9, we see that he used his wisdom to make others wise. So he wasn't just a scholarly person in a university setting, sitting in his ivory tower, studying a book, right? No, he lived his life and he lived it so that he could impart this now knowledge to you, right? He observed it, he closely examined it, he examined other people's lives, and he's arranged it in a careful way, it says. Many proverbs with great care. And here, though, if you look in verse 10, it says that he sought to find words of delight, right? Which, let's just be honest, this is a little bit ironic, isn't it? You get to the end of this book, and when we read Ecclesiastes, I've had this conversation with many of you, we tend to think of this book as this sort of like gloomy, pessimistic, depressing book right? that feels really random and disorganized. It feels really hard to understand. And so it's a little bit shocking, if you're being honest, when you get to the end here and he says, I've arranged this with great care. And you're like, okay, I've chosen words that are delightful words. Has that been your experience? right? This is what the intended experience has been. I mean, just consider some of the beautiful words from this book, right? I mean, think about chapter three. Think about the famous time poem, the catalog of time. He says, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. I mean, that's that's a delightful way, right? A beautiful way to demonstrate both the order, right, woven into this world, and at the same time, our inability to control it. That's a helpful poem. He says in chapter 4, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I mean, that's a really helpful image of the importance of community in our lives. I mean, the very word picture of vanity that's been in the book like 38 times. I mean, that's, that's a helpful image of smoke, or we've, we've said it's like that breath on a, on a cold morning, right? That, that's meant to describe for us everything that we're trusting in and how quickly it can evaporate. Right? I mean, I'll never look in my breath again the same way after reading the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know about you. Right? Or think about the, the ridiculous image of, of someone trying to shepherd the wind, right? You're, you're trying to herd the wind. That's, that's a picture of our empty striving for lasting gain in this world. We've seen that in multiple places. Right? So not only are these words meant to be delightful, but they're also meant to be true. You see that at the end of verse 10, don't you? Right? These two intentions of God's word go hand in hand. And I think most of us, we think of the Bible and we look at the Bible through the lens of that last word. He uprightly wrote words of truth, right? We, we want to know, don't we, that the Bible is reliable. Like we want to know if it's true. Well, that's really important, obviously, right? That's really good. But truth and beauty, they're not opposites, are they? No, so this is saying in this one verse that the Bible is beautiful because it's true. And it's true because it's beautiful, Do you see this? I mean, just think about some of the truthful images here in the book, as we're just kind of recapping here. At the beginning of chapter 12, we see the brevity of life and how the day is drawing near when the days will become evil, referring to your death. Uh, We we see the holiness of God spelled out as truth in chapter 5, verse 1, when we're told to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. We see the sovereignty of God in chapter 7, verse 13, when it says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We see the sinfulness of humanity, right? The truthfulness of that. When it says in chapter 7, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We go, that's true. Can anybody raise their hand? Right? We've seen the beauty of joy and the generosity of God six different times when we're told to enjoy life. And so some of these things we've, we, we know and we love and, and we gravitate towards as true, but some of these things we kind of want to ignore because sometimes truth hurts, doesn't it? Truth hurts, and that's why there's painful words here. If you look in verse 11, what does it say? The words of the wise are like goats, right? And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, goats right? Have you are used a goad lately, right? Goads were used by shepherds or people who were driving herds of animals in the ancient world to keep animals on the straight path. And so they were like these staffs that had these sharp nails embedded in them, and they were used to poke and to prod the animal, right? And so if the animal went too far to the left, you'd prod the animal. There'd be pain. If they went too far to the right, right, there would be pain, If the animal stopped and needed to keep going, right, there would be pain. The only way the animal could avoid pain was to stay on the path and go in the direction that it was intended to go. And so in a certain sense, it's saying the preacher's words, it's like a goad. And then furthermore, it says they're like nails, right, they can wound and they don't wound us, though, to harm us, but they wound us to heal us and to get us to where we're actually supposed to be. And so some of these words in this book, they may have come to you with a very sharp tip. There's been some pretty uncomfortable weeks, hasn't there? It may be hard to learn that if you want to know and love and walk with God all your days, then that's going to be painful at times. And so we think of some of the painful words like Chapter four, behold the tears of the oppressed and there's no one there to comfort them. Well, that's a painful truth. There's a vacancy there. And we're called into that. When we think of death, I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living. It's a harsh truth, isn't it? A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. There's some painful words in this book. These are hard words. Who is saying them though? Who is saying them? Well, the source of these words is identified here as who? In verse 11, the one shepherd. The one shepherd. He's got the goad. Right? Now, people have debated who this is referring to, but if you just read the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and if you think about the context here, you see very clearly in the Bible that God is the source of wisdom. Right? Proverbs says the beginning or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? that God is the source of this. And even furthermore, if you just think about the, the development of what a shepherd is in the Bible, it's, it's very significant to watch. I mean, think back, who is the first shepherd in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Well, it's Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He's a shepherd. And what happens to Abel? He's murdered, right? So the first shepherd in the Bible is murdered. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? All the patriarchs, what was their vocation? They were shepherds. And then you get to the end of the book of Genesis, and we read that Jacob says of God for the very first time in the book, God, you have been my shepherd all these days. And from that point forward in the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, it's God who's referred to as the shepherd. We see this in the Exodus account with Moses. right? You see it in the life of David as he is uh, the shepherd king. Right, we read places like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And God set up all these shepherds to shepherd his people, right? It's people that need to be shepherded. And all these under-shepherds that God has set up in the Bible, they do a really bad job. Right? They exercise their life for their own gain, for the harm of others. But you get to the book of Ezekiel, and you see it's God who promises. He says, I will raise up someone from the line of David, a shepherd. Who will be shepherd over my people forever. This great promise, but who is it? It's God who is a shepherd, right? And that's what we're exactly seeing here. These are sharp words from a loving shepherd, which means what? It means we're sheep. It means we're sheep, right? You don't have to be around sheep to know that sheep are not the brightest people in the world. That's a hard word to receive, right? It was hard for me to receive at times, right? Sheep need a shepherd. And how ironic is this that, I mean, I've heard a saying going around even this past year amongst Christians, don't be a sheep, right? Have you heard this saying, don't be a sheep, right? That's one of the strangest things we could ever say because we are sheep, right? We need a shepherd. We, we all need help to get to where God wants us to be, to keep us on that path. And if these words come from the one shepherd God, we are wise to pay careful attention to them and to walk in them. And that's what verse 12 is telling us, that there's this warning against leaving these words. Do you see that in verse 12? What does it say? My son, beware, it's a warning here, of anything beyond these, right, beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh, Right, so there's this warning here against the weariness of making many books. Right, this kind of mirrors what was said at the beginning of the book, that in much learning is much vexation, that idea. Like, we are bad at following this advice, right? Books are not bad. I love books. I have many books, right? But did you know that there's more than one million new books published in the U.S. alone every single year, right? You can't read all of them. And so what this is saying, I mean, we could even insert other words here. You can insert the word podcasts into this book. Of the many podcasts, there is no end, right? And and in much listening is much weariness, right? You could equate different words here. But the point is not that uh, research, the point is not that learning is bad. That's not the point. The point is thinking that if I leave these words because the answer is somewhere else, I'm not going to find it there. That's the warning, It's, well, maybe that's not found here. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe there's a book that hasn't been written that's going to give me the answer to the question that I've been searching for all along. It hasn't, and it won't be. This is really challenging because of the virtue of our age, right? Because we are people who like to seek and search and learn, but we never often want to arrive at the truth. I mean, I've found many people over the years who I've met who are with this sort of search in their mind's eye. They're constantly learning, they're constantly reading, hoping to never arrive at the truth. Because if you arrive at the truth, well, then you'd have to orient your life around that truth. But if I'm always learning, it can kind of mask my problem, right? There's an enjoyment there, there's an avoidance even there. Paul says this to 2 Timothy in in chapter 3 of the letter he writes, Saying, beware of these people who are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Similar idea here. As we have deep issues, we have a a depth of search that we are all on in our lives. That a book or, or something else that is not found outside of these pages, but we often search there. It can mask the problem for a while, but we're just tricking ourselves. Uh, To put it to you in a different way, it's like the idea of if you've ever dropped a piece of food on the ground, right? Have you ever done that? Probably have. What do you do if you wanted it? You pick it up, and what do you do? You blow on it, right? You blow on the food. Why do you do that? I do it too. I'm not making fun of you. making fun of myself, I guess. But you do that, why? Because it makes you think that it's clean now, right? You have no idea what's on that thing anymore, but you just... It's all good, right? And you throw it in your mouth, right? It just distracted you from the real thing. It gave you this sort of medicinal thing in your brain or something that told you it's now clean. It's now good, right? In the same way, if I'm always searching, if I never have to deal with the truth, right? It's kind of like blowing on my food. It's actually not fixing anything. And so here's this big question. Who is shepherding you? Who is shepherding you? In other words, who are you listening to? Who is it that you're listening to? Maybe you're like, well, me. (laughs) No one tells me what to do, right? I listen to myself, and I evaluate everything based upon that valuation that I have. Is it a tribe, right, or is it the shepherd, right, who's giving you words of wisdom, right, words that are beautiful and true and at times painful, right, but they're keeping you on the path. right, this is the important evaluation because it leads to the conclusion of this entire book, which is making us ask the question once again, who do I fear? Who do I fear? Look in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing with her good or evil. So verse 13, he says, the end of the matter. Well, that's kind of like saying when you break it all down or what I'm trying to say is, right, or when you really think about it or when all is said and done, right, it's this great summary where he's been leading us this whole time. After everything that we've heard in this book, all 12 chapters, all has been heard. You see that? Wow, really? Really? I mean, all has been heard? Do you think all has been heard? I mean, that's a big statement. This statement is revealing to us the reason for the journey we've been on. He's wanting to cover every base, to uncover every single rock. So the quest we've been on is searching for anything that could be gained in this life under the sun, right? Is there anything we can give ourselves to that at the end of our lives, it would have actually really mattered, right? We've looked at everything, wealth and wisdom and knowledge, Time, work, relationships, government, and justice, enjoyment of things, religion, death. And he's getting to the end now, and he's showing us there really isn't anything left that has, been, that has not been dealt with in a broad way, right? There's, there's no one in this room, basically. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you understand what it's saying. There's no one in this room that can say, you forgot about this. Is there gain found there? He's saying, no, all has been heard, right? So what gain is there in this life under the sun? What can I spend my energy doing? What does it say? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I just want to ask you honestly, how does that land with you tonight? I mean, is that a bit disappointing? You know, it's kind of like that person who was telling you a story and it seemed like it was going to be funny, right? And then they get to the punchline you're like, that was it? Right? That was the story. Why did you tell me? You know, this kind of idea. Are you disappointed if you're being honest? Right? I mean, we just waited for over three months through this beautiful, challenging, and at times depressing book of Ecclesiastes and we get to the author's aim, his main argument that He's dressed up here as true wisdom, and we're told, this is how we should live a meaningful life. How does this sit with you? Are you disappointed? I mean, is this drudgery? Is, is believing this is how to live a meaningful life? Is this sort of like the equivalent of eating your vegetables? Right? You don't want to do it, but it's probably good for you. You know, that kind of idea. Well, not at all, right? Do you see what he's saying? Right? He, he's wrestled with all the questions, and he's basically saying, what if things are completely different than what you think? What if this whole world under the sun is not the only world? What if God actually rewards those who seek him? What if one of God's main characteristics, as we've seen, is his generosity and his gifts are all around you? And what if the emptiness and purposelessness that you and I feel, that is really the reason why this feels disappointing? Well, what if all of that that we feel all stems from the fact that we will not accept this? that we do not believe and live for this God? that we want something else. I mean, it's actually interesting that our English translations throw in this word duty because it's actually not there in the original text. They're trying to help you interpret it a little bit. But this literally just says, this is the whole of man, right? What this is saying, this is the explanation of human life, basically. This is not just our duty, it's our reason for being, right? It's the whole of life. You miss this, you've missed life. You've blown it. It's essentially what he's saying. Uh, This might be confusing, you know, I think in many ways, because we get to this part and we go, man, fear God and keep his commandments. Why would God want me to fear him and just obey him? You know, I thought God wanted me to love him. I thought God loved me. And so we wrestle with how do fear and love work together, you know, and so your mind might even go to You know, how Michael Scott says, well, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. You know, and that's how fear and love go together. You know, maybe it's something like that. God wants us to be afraid of how much we love him. That's not at all what he's talking about, obviously. I mean, just think about all that we've seen in this magnificent book. Guys, there's a lot of things in life that we fear, isn't there? I mean, remember that really hard, painful word, right? Right? They talked about how you will never be remembered. You will be forgotten. I mean, we fear being forgotten, don't we? We fear losing out. We fear dying. We fear not being in control. We fear being mistreated. We fear being misunderstood. We fear being rejected. We fear wasting our life. We fear failure because of the humiliation that comes. What if I don't get the job? What if I let everybody down? We fear being found out for who we really are and what people really think of us if we actually took off the facade. We fear the unknown. And so we walk through this life with our shield up and our sword out and we're either ducking in self-protection or we retreat into ourselves in order to appease other people. Furthermore, I mean, we are flooded with more reasons than ever to fear these days. I mean, from Twitter to TV news, we fear global terrorism, we fear the loss of freedoms, we fear weather, pandemics, political turmoil. I mean, and the speed at which we now get our information is so fast, it's often incomplete. And so it's so easy for me just to pick up my phone, unlock it, and open up an app, and I am told 12 things I need to be afraid of today. I mean, we are afraid, and Ecclesiastes has hit the nail on the head, hasn't it? It's it's, it's what we fear, or rather whom we fear, that he's saying matters in your life. So fear, then, what does it do? Well, it creates in me this sort of restless searching, always learning, but never arriving sort of attitude in my life. this is exactly why St. Augustine famously said in his opening prayer of his book, Confessions, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because God, I am afraid. Right? Fear God, and you will live well in this world. That's what we're being told. I don't know about you, um, but I have this bad habit of going grocery shopping uh, with my wife's list when I'm hungry. And so what happens to me when I do that is I inevitably come home with five extra items that I was given to buy. Um, I don't know about you, if you ever shop while you're hungry, uh, but when you do this, what happens? You gravitate towards the quick, easy fixes of what you think is going to mask your hunger for that moment, right? I grab the candy bar in line. I grab something else that I shouldn't grab, right? But if I were to go shopping and I've already eaten a really good, solid, healthy meal, I'm going to navigate my way through that grocery store very differently, won't I? Why? Because I'm full. I'm full. The same is true with fear. If I fear God, if I'm full with this reverential, on-my-knees, love-of-God fear, I navigate my way through this world in a whole different sort of way. If I'm empty, I have so much, so much that I can fear, so much that I can fear. And so this is the whole ordeal then. We live with the end in mind. Don't we see this? I mean, this is the whole deal. We live in fear of something. So the question is, who do I fear, right? And that is answered by who am I obeying, which is exactly why it says, fear God and keep his commandments. And the way that you read that is so significant, you guys, so significant. Because I think so often we read something like that idea, and we can think of a really terrible boss who we're supposed to obey, but we know that we're only obeying that boss out of the fact that that boss wants to look good himself. He has maybe a selfish aim in his life. He needs me to do something for his sake. But it's very different, isn't it? When you know of someone who loves you, who loves you deeply and asks you to obey them. Because you know that out of great love for you, right, you will obey them and it'll actually be for your good, right? This is what this is getting at here. Fear God, keep his commandments. It's the whole duty of man, right? So why should we fear God then? Why should we fear God? Well, because look at where life ends. Look at verse 14. What does it say? For God... Will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Whether good or evil. Do you see what this is saying? That all of life is moving towards a day where I will meet God and he is going to evaluate my life. Every deed. Secret thing. Good or evil. Right? So a meaningful life then prepares for this day. Prepares for this day, doesn't it? Um, I was telling my wife yesterday, I uh, was trying to indoctrinate my kids by watching this, um, making them watch this baseball show for kids um, called Playball on MLB Network, and I was forcing them to basically watch this thing. I do want them to grow up loving baseball, and um, they were telling these stories of all these baseball players, and they are asking these baseball players, what is your biggest nightmare, and I was telling her about this because it blew me away, um, because Every single player was talking about this story, this nightmare that they have on a reoccurring basis, that they are in a dream, right? And they're in a ballpark and it's packed and they're off in the farthest part of the ballpark or they're down in the clubhouse going to the bathroom or something and their name is called for them to be up at bat, right? And so they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so, they're, I mean, they're, this is like their nightmare. And I was telling her about this. I'm like, that's so funny. I would never be afraid of, I would never have a nightmare about this thing, right? But I told her how, Often I have a nightmare where I'm in a room like this, it's seconds before I'm supposed to preach, and I have this thought, oh, I didn't even do any, I didn't study this whole week, I don't even know what I'm going to say right now, right? And so I have this horrible nightmare that I have, and I wake up and I'm like, oh good, it's like Wednesday or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm telling her about this, and she goes, well, that's really funny because I actually have a nightmare, and she's being honest with me, I have a nightmare that we're leaving on vacation and I have not packed anything. Right, And so it was just this moment where I'm like, well, I'm not worried about that. Maybe I should be worried about that more and help out or something. I don't really know. right? But we have all these different nightmares, but they're all around this different idea, aren't they? That we are not prepared. That we are not prepared. And Ecclesiastes is saying there is a day coming that no matter what your nightmare is, it might not be mine, it might not be my wife's, and I'm be a professional ball player's. Right? But there's a day coming when all of us will share the same experience And some people will discover that they are not prepared and it won't be a dream, right? Their life has been one long exercise in avoiding reality and ignoring what is coming toward them, which is who? God and his rightful evaluation of their lives. And so in the words of the preacher, they are meant to be like the hand on the shoulder that wakes us up from our slumber and ends the dream and says, live, live today. And how you do that is by fearing God and obeying him. This is success. This is a successful life, no matter what anybody else will tell you. Is that us preparing for the end and living in light of it? So the question then is, how do you prepare for a day where you read that line, and many of you are probably thinking about it, how do I prepare for a day when all of my secrets are going to be laid bare? I mean, that's what it says, isn't it? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. So if you did a secret thing that is good or a public thing that is good, God will draw that out and evaluate it. And he will administer his pleasing approval or his judgment. And you will be proud of that. In a good way. And the opposite is true. If you did a secret thing that will be evil in the sight of God, or a public thing even. God is going to draw it out. We go, secrets? Oh, no. Right? Because we have them, don't we? And the problem with secrets is that secrets breed shame. That's why we hide them. That's why they are secrets. And so we keep them tucked away and hidden, and you see people go to great, horrible lengths to keep their secrets hidden Whether by coming to an agreement with somebody, whether by paying somebody some money to keep quiet, even signing non-disclosure agreements, changing cities, groups of friends, jobs, you name it. With secrets comes shame. And I imagine if you really think about a verse like this, this does not feel life-giving to you. Because you immediately have something that comes into your mind that you hope will never come out and it's being promised to you that it will. So what will you do? What will you do? Because as I'm told to fear God, I really just fear in general from being found out. I have this shame like Adam and Eve who went and hid themselves from God. So how do I prepare for a day when my secrets will be drawn out? How do you do that? Well, you do it by actually fearing God. You do it by looking to the shepherd in verse 11, don't you? The one that you're supposed to fear, guys, is the one who actually loves you. And the Bible preaches to you. He is the one, actually, the one you should fear, the one who loves you. He is the one who lifts your shame. We have this great statement, vivid statement from Jesus, because if you remember when I said that um, in Ezekiel, God promised to set up one shepherd over everybody. Jesus comes onto the scene, and here in John chapter 10, which should be on the screen, what does he say? He stands up, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, for the sheep, well, that's me. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. He knows you. And I lay down my life for, my, for the sheep. So he not only knows you, in knowing you, he lays down his life for you. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Well, that's good news for you if you don't trust him yet today. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. What does this good shepherd do? Does he use his position for for his own gain? No. He lays his life down for the sheep. The shepherd, though, you would think is far more important than sheep. So why would a shepherd die for sheep? Because he's a good shepherd. He's defining what a good shepherd is. He is perplexingly good for a shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. But in laying down his life for the sheep, he lays down his life because he bears your shame. That's what Isaiah 53, that's what Hebrews 12 tells us, that he endures the cross, despising the shame, which is my shame. And guys, we are promised in the Bible that he will never stop shepherding you. If you read in Revelation 7, I think this is on the screen. It says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The slaughtered lamb is the shepherd. And even on that final day, if you've trusted in him, if his death has been your death, if he has borne your shame, if you've trusted in him by faith in that, after that great evaluation, that great judgment, this is telling you that even in that day, for all eternity, you will still need a shepherd and you will have one. Guys, if your shepherd bore your shame and laid his life down for you and he won't lose you but will always care for you, protect you and watch over you, then can't we trust him to lead us? I mean, shouldn't we listen to him? Wouldn't you want to listen to him? I mean, wouldn't he be the one who reorients all your fear? If the one that you are created to fear dies for you, wouldn't you trust that anything that he calls you to obey is for your good? That anything he would call you to obey is actually. A meaningful life. Guys, as a sheep, I don't, I don't need to know the destination. I don't need to know each turn and pasture, every mountain or valley I'm led down. I don't need to go elsewhere for meaning. I need to follow my shepherd. And this is what Ecclesiastes has led us to this whole time. That if all of life ends here, then it begins here today. If this is where life ends up, then this is how I live out this morning, this evening, Monday, whatever day it is. And we live with that day in mind, not controlled by anything under this sun, not putting our hope in something in this world, foolishly thinking, maybe this will work this time. No, we know. So we fear God, and our fear doesn't drive us away from him it reorients our whole life around him. Let's all stand to our feet as we go into a time of prayer, a time of response, a time of communion, and a time of singing. God, you are the one that we are made for. You are the one that we put our hope in. And Lord, I pray for myself and really everybody here, Lord, as we've lived this week and at many moments in many days. Maybe it's extended way beyond this week for years or maybe never. We've never lived with this end in mind. God, I know maybe many of us have walked through this whole book, just putting it off. Lord, I just pray that you would allow this word to sink deep into the recesses of our heart and take root God, at the end of the day, that we would live our lives in this fear and obedience of you, trusting you, God, because we know you're good. We know that you're wise. So I pray for us as a church, Lord, you promise us in John 10 that your sheep hear your voice. I pray that we would listen to your voice. God, that we'd follow you into anything that you're calling us into, even if we don't understand. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.